The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 1st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I am Mike Pesca. And if you are hearing this, I am not in the country. Well, that may not be true. I don't know when you're listening to it. But if you're listening to this on this day that I just read, I'm not in the country. And who knows what's happening in the news? I mean, I'm going to assume that Donald Trump has cleared house... Uh, gotten rid of all his emoluments and Russian problems, maybe authorized Chuck Schumer to write the infrastructure bill that he wants. That's what I'm going to assume has happened. But in non-news, let me tell you a little bit about conversations with my son. I have two, but I take the subway with one of them to school every day. And this exchange happened. Emmett, Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, mate. Emmett, do you even know what the Flintstones are? Have you ever watched an episode of the Flintstones? Emmett, no, is it good? Me. Now, by the way, if you heard that question, what would you say? Here's what I said. Is it good? It's, um, it's iconic. Emmett, what do you mean iconic? Me. It means it's so famous that it's neither good nor bad. Another time when I was riding the subway with my son, he made a reference to the Stay Puffed Marshmallow guy. And we talk about Ghostbusters a lot. And I realized that Stay Puffed is the most recognizable brand of marshmallow. It is just about the only food that I could think of where the fictional brand, or in fact, the only product where a fictional brand is better known than an actual brand. Well, there is another exception. Anti-earthquake pills that do not affect roadrunners. I know Acme makes them, but I know of nowhere else where you can buy them. Then Emmett, and this was, I think, interesting how it happened. He was talking about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and he said, or who's that guy who always shows up when you call him? Now, from this little bit of information, I said, oh, you mean the Kool-Aid guy? And he said, yes. And then we got to talking about Kool-Aid. And I asked him several questions, which then I went and researched on the internet, and they've been out there like sort of Gilligan's Island three-hour tour, why they take all the clothes type things. But what is the Kool-Aid Man? Is the Kool-Aid Man a pitcher of glass who happens to be filled with Kool-Aid, a beverage that he shares with others? Or is the Kool-Aid man an actual bowl of Kool-Aid? Is Kool-Aid part of him? And therefore, when he offers you Kool-Aid, is he therefore engaging in some sort of cannibalism, or since it's a liquid, like vampirism? Does the Kool-Aid man drink other flavors of Kool-Aid? If the Kool-Aid man really is glass, you think the last thing he'd want to be doing is smashing down walls left and right. Emmett was with me on all these questions, and we're doing a lot of research. I think that we found that the answer to most of them is, oh, yeah. On the show today, I spiel about, well, it is true that you're nobody until somebody loves you. But what about when Donald Trump says nobody knows? We're going to delve into that. But first, the resistance. What is the best way to be part of the resistance? The New Republic's Jeet here is here to analyze. This time, the resistance will be televised. It will also be tweeted. It will also be shared on social media. But will happen in person, thousands upon thousands of people in the street resisting Donald Trump. It's all written about the tactics, the strategy, the efficacy and the ethics, the path of most resistance. It's in the New Republic. The subtitle is The Promise and Perils of the Fight Against Trump. Jeet here is the author. Hello, Jeet. Welcome to The Gist. Uh, great to be here. 
First question, what proof do you have or have you seen that protest causes, doesn't correlate, but causes change? Well, um, let's see. American history, pass them. I mean, you have like a slave republic uh, where only uh, property-owning men can vote. And then over the course of American history, you've had like protest movements that have extended the franchise, uh, worked towards the abolishing slavery, uh, leading to the Civil War, gaining women the franchise, and then, you know, like knocking all barriers. I mean, like popular protest is the engine of social change uh, in a democracy. Oh, really? See, I, I'm not being uh, obstreperous right from the start. I, I'm a little surprised that you'd say that. I don't see that as being causal. I see it being correlative. I think that slavery ended for a lot of reasons, and definitely the abolitionist movement was part of it, but it was because people wanted slavery to end as opposed to slavery ending because there was an abolitionist movement. Well, people wanted slavery to end, and then how do you actually um, affect change in a democracy? You actually you have, you um, have a war. Uh, and pa- pa- power, as Frederick Douglass says, you know, power never concedes without a fight. If you have entrenched interest in the case of slavery that you know profited from unfree human labor, they're not going to give it up until you have people trying to pass laws to close down the slave trade and then to um, abolish slavery in the north and then restrict it in the territories and then fight against the Fugitive Slave Act. I mean, like there was actual people pushing for laws to change. So. I mean, I, I think that's just how democracy works. You have, you know, entrenched interest. You have a uh, political structure uh, where divisions are played out and you have social movements that are pushing for change. Do you think if whatever Trumpism is changes, either gets defeated or gets impeached, it will be mostly because of mass protests or other mechanisms? The impeachment is a kind of like an interesting test case of this because that that is really sort of high politics uh, on a big scale. But even with the impeachment, the whole impeachment won't happen unless there's an investigation. And uh, what's happened uh, so far is that Democrats, uh, ordinary Democrats have been pushing the Democratic Party to take a harder line against Trump and also protesting against Republicans at town halls uh, to st- have oversight. And I think that that's a real force in uh, pushing forward the investigation and sort of keeping it alive. Because I think that there are various interests that don't want – I mean, obviously, the re- Republicans in Congress – would be much happier if this just goes away. It's going to be a huge mess. A lot of Democrats that are sort of, you know, their natural instinct is to sort of get along within the system. Uh, right after Trump won, we actually saw a lot of that, where even people like Bernie Sanders were saying, well, we're looking forward to working with the president. Uh, that was a kind of like sort of common consensus. He won the election and there was a kind of elite consensus. Well, we have to give this guy a chance. Well, Bernie backed the Trump protest right immediately after the election. Bernie backed the uh, protest that happened at the inauguration, you know, it was reported that before the inauguration, a week or so before, you know, Politico had stories, he was extending the olive branch. Here's here's what he said. He said, I don't think it makes sense to say, no, we're not going to work in any way, in any form with the Trump administration. And he talked about infrastructure and roads and waters and said, if he's prepared to work with us on rebuilding America's crumbling infrastructure and creating millions of jobs and doing it in a way that doesn't privatize our infrastructure or give tax breaks to millionaires, yes, let's work together. You think he shouldn't have said that? I think from a political point of view, it makes sense. You're supposed to give the new president uh, kind of a break. But I think that I don't think he would say that now. Like, I, I think that the whole 
approach of most Democrats to Donald Trump, uh, elected Democrats, has changed. And there's, you know, like a real uh, sense that the party has to be in opposition. And we saw that in the sort of Senate hearings where, you know, like it, it became really sort of like party line. It's really stiffened the spine of Democratic elected officials and the sort of, you know, even the sort of small gestures, olive branch gestures have disappeared. Right. That is true. That is what happened. But it seems, especially in your article, you're faulting them for even making the gestures. You say that at the very moment that the burgeoning opposition needed stalwart leadership, the Democratic Party opted for obedience to the political norms that Trump and the Republicans flouted. And the evidence was that Hillary went away. Obama left his successor, tried to persuade the left to chill. And then you add that Bernie quote. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. They've moved on since then. But what do you think Obama and Hillary should have done in that very moment? I think that there's a real case to have been made uh, that right from the start, there should have been a, um, a statement that this uh, guy ran an illegitimate campaign just based on his bigotry. Like, I don't think in well, modern Bernie, America— Bernie said that and Hillary said that. Obama took the high road and didn't weigh in uh, explicitly. Then again, he had a tough eight years and needed a break, and Hillary had a tough year and a half and needed a break. I kind of cut him I think that I think that there's a real leadership crisis in the Democratic Party. That's actually, like, my argument for where— the resistance came from, that I think that there were a lot of uh, people who were looking for leadership and the sort of traditional people for like very good political reasons. Like, like I, think, I think all these figures, Sanders, Hillary, and Obama were acting according to the script of like normal democratic politics, which is that if you lose an election, you concede, uh, you try to work with the uh, incoming government. But I mean, there's ways in which uh, Trump was not a normal figure. And I would actually go further and say that the sort of Republican parties have, uh, that sort of back Trump is uh, has really flooded a lot of norms. You know, like Democrats um, need to be more vocal in calling attention to that and fighting that. Right. So what did it cost the left that, in your estimation, originally they were too acquiescent? The, I wouldn't put it in terms of cost. I think that, like, from my narrative, the the value was that, like, it made a lot of ordinary Democrats think, like, you know, like, we can't rely on our leadership to be the opposition. We have to be the opposition party. And I think that's where a lot of the energy that you see in the Democratic Party is coming from. There's a feeling of abandonment right after the election and a feeling that, like, you know, the um, Democratic Party as it exists, uh, it, you know, doesn't have strong enough a backbone and it's up – to like regular people to push it, to, to like not just like fight against Trump, but to fight against the Democratic establishment that is sort of acquiescing to Trump. Uh, and I, I mean, more broadly, like I think the election of Trump is a real emergency. Like I think there were all sorts of institutions that failed that uh, normally you would think that if an authoritarian demagogue is in America, uh, there'd be something that would stop him. The party structure failed. The Republicans, uh, despite everything and despite knowing that this is like a con man who's like unstable, they made him their nominee. And the media engaged in a lot of false equivalents, gave him a lot of coverage that uh, helped their ratings, but, you know, was not conducive towards democracy. In some ways, the Democratic Party as well failed. That like they were, they, I mean, just in the sense that they didn't run a campaign good enough to defeat him. My story is, you know, after the shock of his election, there are a lot of people who woke up and realized everything that we had expected to stand as a sort of guardrail against a figure like Trump has failed. And so therefore, the only choice left is popular opposition. Do you think that Democratic leaders now, Adam Schiff, John Warner, Charles Schumer, are falling down on the job now? 
No, I think the actually the the Democratic Party has like greatly you know improved from those like first few weeks after the um, election. I think that there's a sort of interesting question of like you know what happens to the party now. Like there's a, you know a lot of in some ways the resistance is kind of mimicking what had happened with the Republicans with the Tea Party. That uh, you know there's a faction of it that wants to sort of primary Democratic candidates and you know make them like even more hardline. Yeah, I mean like like in terms of where the Democratic Party is now. I, I, I think it's caught up with its base. You're right that uh, the Democrats did not oppose him on Syria, uh, the Syria bombings. And that's true. In fact, the day before uh, he chose to attack Syria, Hillary Clinton essentially called for the exact military action that he undertook. The New York Times did a rundown of what people said. And most Democrats, some said this is just flat out wrong. Most said, while I agree with the strike, the important question is what part of overall strategy Uh, is this and what comes next. But you think they should have just opposed him on Syria because, A, it's good tactics to oppose him in everything he does, or mostly because, B, bombing Syria was wrong? B, bombing... I mean, it's not just that bombing Syria is wrong. It's like, we know who this guy is. Like, he's not someone who will, like, um, undertake you know, strategically rational activities. And I think that there's like, it's pretty clear that uh, that bombing thing was kind of like a one-off. I mean, if I'm remembering the circumstances right, was it done like, at uh, his resort in Florida. Yes, he was and having a, he was having a beautiful, the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake you've ever seen. He was sharing that with the premier of China, and then the fifty nine uh, Hellfire missiles rained down. Yeah, I mean, like it's troubling enough that America is the sort of you know has this imperial role of you know trying to govern the Middle East uh, through uh, uh, drones and bombings, but to then also give that power to someone who's like so manifestly clownish. I feel like you need an opposition party to that. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to read Elizabeth Warren's statement on Syria. It's a few sentences. Tell me what she did wrong. Here it is. The use of chemical weapons against innocent Syrian men, women, and children is a clear violation of international law. The Syrian regime must be held accountable for this horrific act, and its actions underscore why the United States should embrace innocent people who are fleeing in terror. Terror, but the Constitution gives the power to authorize the use of military force to the legislative branch. Expanded military intervention in Syria requires action by Congress. If President Trump expands such an authorization. He owes the American people an explanation of his strategy to bring an end to the violence in Syria. We should not escalate this conflict without clear goals and a plan to achieve them. What was wrong with that? Oh, I, I totally agree with what she said. Well, there. but yeah. then, but but then you but categorize. I, mean, I, I think that's a wait a minute. Bit. But if you categorize the Democrats' response as lukewarm support or acquiescence to Syria, she was in that camp. She was in the one who five thirty eight said support, but with qualifications about the next step. She wasn't saying she didn't support it. She was saying it's very troubling what this r- rises. This is what most of the Democrats did. They. They were resisting. That that statement that you're reading, it has like the further step of demanding congressional approval. Like I think that uh, most of the uh, Democratic support was along the lines of, you know, like this seems like a good idea and he has the power to do that. Like I actually think in in all these issues of foreign policy, the step forward is exactly what she's saying, which is like Congress kind of has to step up to the plate. Congress does actually have – 
a lot of like power in terms of foreign policy that it doesn't use because traditionally, uh, at least since the Second World War, you know, Americans have trusted their presidents to uh, execute policy. But I mean, this is not someone who can be trusted. So I, I do feel like I see in foreign policy, it's not just a, a matter of like, you know, supporting one action or supporting the other. There's actually a kind of a crisis in having a figure like that as the head of foreign policy. And the only real redress is to think more radically, to think, you know, in terms of much greater sort of congressional oversight and to rein in the imperial presidency. I mean, that's the sort of crisis, right? Like the imperial presidency that emerged out of the world wars and out of the Cold War is now in the hands of someone who's like as unfit as anyone could be to hold that office. If change is to come, will it come from the left or people who didn't vote for Trump being more steely-spined? Or will it come from the right saying, this has gone too far, some elected Republican saying, um, it's not worth it, you're destroying America, or just, you know, the voters who might have voted for Trump defecting? Where's the change going to come from? I think the best hope for change is for the Democrats to retake the House next year. And I think that's going to come from Democrats who don't normally vote in midterms coming out. Um, I think the whole idea that, you know, we can rely on conservatives to like sort of, you know, wake up and realize that Trump is a problem. I mean, that, that was Hillary Clinton's strategy. She like, you know, aimed to try to get those sort of never Trump conservatives. And there were a few of them, but they weren't enough. And so I think the support, the, the change has to come from a re-energized Democratic Party. And as far as we can tell, like so far, you know, Trump's base is sort of sticking with them. I mean, I think the good news is that his base is smaller than the Democratic base. So if the Democrats can, you know, get their act together and get their people out there, that's yes, where change is going to yes, come Yes, yes. I from. do believe winning the midterms would be sufficient. I don't know if it's necessary, though. Uh, I think that there can be other ways to thwart Trump with, you know, Ben Sass, John McCain and one other Republican senator saying uh, that's that's it. Game on. But when have we seen that? You know, John McCain, you know, Russia is his big issue. And like he rolled over for Tillerson. Right. I just I, I, I don't yeah. see like any of those, you know, like they'll occasionally say critical remarks about Trump for the Sunday morning shows or whatever. But like I have yet to see any real evidence of like political backbone or any real splintering of the Repo- Republican coalition. Yes, I agree with that. And luckily you could fight on two fronts. You could try to win the midterms and also hope that a Republican senator will show some spine. Sure, you, you you can do that, but I mean, I I think to, to go back to sort of broader politics, I do think like if I were to critique Hillary Clinton's campaign, it would be that you know she really like aimed her message at sort of moderate Republicans who were appalled at Trump and who are by her theory gonna hold their noses and vote for her. And what we found in the election was that most of those people returned to the GOP because they are partisans and they'll prefer even like a Donald Trump, uh, but having a Republican president and a Republican Supreme Court nominee than they will to any Democrat. And I, I think, you know, partisanship is very strong. Yes. And if I were to critique that part of your not sorry, if I were to join into that part of your critique, I think that she believed that this never Trump movement was a real movement. And I think most of the never Trump movement was relegated to people with blue check marks next to their names on Twitter. 
I mean, it exists among people who are like heavily involved with politics, who are in Washington, sort of policy people and journalists. But like your average Republican yeah, remains true to the party until something really, you know, terrible happens. Um, and I mean, we saw this earlier with like Nixon. Like it really took, you know, like actual tapes where, you know, like he's basically talking about committing crimes to convince people. And, you know, we could hope and I don't know, Trump is stupid enough that we, and he's sort of kind of already done that. But I mean, saying I'm going to obstruct justice. Uh, but I, I don't think we can bet the farm on that. Jeet here has written The Path of Most Resistance, The Promise and Perils of the Fight Against Trump. He's a contributor to the New Republic. Thank you, Jeet. Thank you. This is really good to be here. And now the spiel wherein I ask, how is folding a gas station map or curing the common cold different from the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture? As you know, the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture describes the set of rational solutions to equations defining an elliptic curve. See, everybody knows that solving the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture is hard. It's hard to solve. That's why there's a million dollar prize for solving it. Everybody knows it's hard. Nobody thinks it's not hard, but folding a gas station map or curing the common cold or getting the Pacquiao Mayweather fight to go off. Now, those were things that nobody knew could be so complicated. So I ask you, which category does healthcare belong in? Donald Trump says it's not like the Birch Swinnerton Dyer conjecture. It's more like folding a gas station map in that nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. See, I thought everybody knew that. I've even seen a supercut put together by Politico of President Obama saying that over and over again. You know, healthcare is complicated because our healthcare system is so complex. I suffer no illusions that this will be an easy process. Once again, it will be hard. Healthcare is complicated stuff. So let me explain what's going on here. Simple explanation is that Trump does not know what he's talking about, but that is not what's going on. This is how Trump communicates. See, Donald Trump, ever the showman, knows that when communicating, you want to avoid qualifiers. Those are weasel words. Some, many, most, often, a lot. So when Donald Trump says nobody, what he really means is something close to almost everybody. Example. So where are I'm you on the environment? I'm still open-minded. Nobody really knows. I've Look, I'm somebody that gets it. And nobody really knows. It's not something that's so hard and fast. Nobody knows, meaning almost every informed scientist knows. In fact, most every informed citizen knows climate change is real. Likewise, there's nobody better, which in Donald Trump's mouth means actually millions of people are better. So many, many better people. Here's this example. If you look at Ivanka, you take a look and she's so strong, as you know, into the women's issue and childcare and so many things should be so good. You, nobody could do better than her. So that's nobody. What about everybody? If nobody means pretty close to everybody. Does everybody mean almost nobody? When Donald Trump says it, it does mean that. I released the most extensive financial review of anybody in the history of politics. It's either 100 or maybe more pages of names of companies, locations of companies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's a very impressive list. And everybody says that. Everybody says that. 
except every single ethics expert I've ever heard from who all say it's inadequate. So everybody means almost nobody. Nobody means almost everybody. To wit, here are a couple things Donald Trump says he could do better than anybody or what he knows more than anybody. I think I know more about foreign policy than anybody running. And who could forget this? I can be more presidential than anybody. I can be more presidential if I want to be. I can be more presidential than anybody. You know, when I have 16 people coming at me from 16 different angles, uh, you don't want to be so presidential. You have to win. You have to beat them back, right? And, but I would say more presidential, and I've said this a couple of times, more presidential than anybody other than the great Abe Lincoln. And I think everybody agrees with him on that. Everybody plays the question is, if when everybody means closer to nobody and vice versa, what about the somebodies? We're all somebodies, right? When does Donald Trump refer to the somebodies, the some people? Here's when. When he needs to introduce a theory or crazily inaccurate statement that even he doesn't want to own. Some people, a lot of people, many are saying. Here he was at a campaign rally talking about how horrible the deal was that the U.S. cut with Iran. What, what's going on there? You, that's why I say, I mean, some people say it's worse than stupidity. There's something going on that we don't know about. I mean, honestly. And you almost think it. I'm not saying that and I'm not a conspiracy person. Nope. He's just reporting what people are saying. Like this. People are saying, many, many people are saying, you know, Trump is right. He's absolutely right about NATO. Some people tell me. A lot of people are saying, I'm just reporting here better than the failing New York Times, I might add. Here's another example of what some folks are saying. This time, it was about President Obama not sufficiently labeling the Orlando nightclub attack as Muslim terrorism. Well, there are a lot of people that think maybe he doesn't want to get it. A lot of people think maybe he doesn't want to know about it. And that's where the nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated idea comes in. Everybody knew it. But it's not that he's lying. It's not that he can't even speak the truth. It's that we don't speak Trump, and he expects us to, clearly, like when he talks to his crowds, including this time when the crowd consisted of all the media at his only press conference as president. Does anybody really think that Hillary Clinton would be tougher on Russia than Donald Trump? Does anybody in this room really believe that? No, not anybody. Everybody. So with this guy to Donald Trump, anybody can figure out what a certain somebody in the Oval Office means when he says everybody and nobody. Now, some people are saying this is not excusable, that there's another word for it, rampant, wanton, uncontrolled, lying. But everybody knows a president wouldn't do that, right? Anybody? You're nobody till somebody loves you. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Chris Berube and Mary Wilson. Oh, yeah. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. The whole time during the beginning of the show, he's yelling, Jet Puff! What about Jet Puff marshmallows? Zoe Chase will be here hosting tomorrow. She'll be speaking with Senator Al Franken. I decided to give her the dregs of the interviews. Uh, She could handle that. The gist. 
Take this, all of you, and drink, for it is my blood, and I am the Kool-Aid man. Oom-puru-de-puru-du-puru, and thanks for listening.